Welcome back, Warriors. Quay Tansei Sego Anibuju. Quay Ninda Luizi Pampometer, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, laws, and governing practices. And it's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. And one of the ways in which we have been able to maintain our identities as Mi'kmaq, Wulistikwe, Kayankahaga, or Wet'suwet'en is through our living relationships and connections to our immediate families, extended families, clans, houses, villages, districts, communities, and our nations. Our nations, with our rich diversity of languages, cultures, and identities, have lived on Turtle Island since time immemorial, and the focus has always been on our relationships with one another and with all of the other living things within our ecosystems. Centuries of violent colonization and genocidal laws, policies, and practices by settler governments have attempted to erase our Indigenous identities and cultures as a means of denying our sovereignty and our inherent rights to govern ourselves and our territories. The resulting genocide has taken a huge toll on our nations and continues to be one of the biggest barriers we face today. The Indian Act in Canada and historic legislation in the United States tried to define our diverse nations as one Indian race that could be measurable by some arbitrary notion of blood quantum to measure our degree of Indianness and thus entitlement or disentitlement to things like food rations. There have been many things done to our nations in the name of forced assimilation and attacks on our identities. Indian residential schools and day schools or boarding schools in the U.S., forced sterilizations of Native women and girls, forced adoptions, also known as the 60s scoop here in Canada, the foster care crisis of racist birth alerts and child apprehensions, the Indian Act, which has served to disentitle thousands of First Nations women and children from both Indian status and membership in their First Nations, and even today, despite all of the changes to the Indian Act forced through court cases, there are still many thousands who have yet to be registered. One of the most negative impacts of colonization is that settler governments have effectively set blood quantum as some kind of determinant of our identities and how we get to belong to our communities, not real blood measurements, because as we all know, you don't get 50% of your blood from your mom and 50% of your blood from your father. It's a notional form, a fictional form, basically a legal fiction created to serve a purpose, to ensure the legislative extinction of Indians or First Nations over time. And this reliance on blood as identity not only serves to disentitle people at the community level, but it creates an opportunity, a door, an opening for non-Indigenous peoples to point to a distant ancestor 500 years in the past as the basis for trying to appropriate Indigenous identity in the here and now. This works perfectly for the government because it erases Native people on both ends. While identity theft, fraud, or appropriation is nothing new, there is a trend happening right now where members of First Nations, the Métis Nation, and Inuit are calling out pretendians. 
from Gray Owl and Joseph Boyden to Michelle Latimer and now Carrie Barasa, powerful people in powerful positions who have used Native identities for their own purposes are being called out. But this is just the tip of the iceberg, especially in universities, governments, and the arts. The pretendians are literally everywhere. Today's panel is a powerhouse of Indigenous experts who will help us understand this issue, the deep harm that it causes, and what universities and other institutions should be doing about it. Today, we are so lucky to have with us Dr. Winona Wheeler. We also have, who is an Associate Professor in Indigenous Studies at the University of Saskatchewan. We also have Dr. Kim Tallbear, who is a professor in the Faculty of Native Studies at the University of Alberta and holds probably the coolest Canada research chair name I've ever heard, Indigenous Peoples, Technoscience and the Environment. And of course, Dr. Veldon Coburn, he's an assistant professor at the Institute of Indigenous Research and Studies at the University of Ottawa. Thank you all so much for joining me today, especially on a weekend. Quay, thanks for having us. Okay, so as is our custom on this podcast, I invite each one of you to introduce yourselves and where you're from in the way that you like to. And, and perhaps, Winona, we will start with you. Thanks, okay. Winona Wheeler. I'm from Fisher River Cree First Nation, but my family comes from George Gordon First Nation and Treaty 4 Territory. And I'm speaking to you today in uh, the traditional lands of the Willow Cree in Treaty 6 Territory. Welcome. And and how about you, Dr. Kim? Um, I am in Treaty 6 territory in Edmonton, um, and uh, I am Sistan Wapdenoyate, uh, which is a Dakota people on the eastern side of South Dakota. Um, I also, I grew up there in part, uh, Flanders-Santee Sioux Reservation and Sistan Wapden, uh, also partly in the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul, and I've been at the U of A in Edmonton for six and a half years now. Oh, wow. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming back to the Warrior Life podcast. And of course, Veldin. Veldin, you've been on the Warrior Life podcast before. Please introduce yourself. <laughs> Hi, Kim and Winona and uh, <laughs> Pam. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, welcome to all of you. <laughs> thanks for having me all. Um, I am Algonquin. I'm from the Algonquins of Pickwaknagon. Uh I'm actually seated right now in my own territory, high up in the hills of uh, what is known as Gatineau Hills, north of Ottawa, and um, I'm, I'm glad to be amongst all of you. Oh, that's awesome. I, I couldn't think of a better panel to tackle some of these issues, and we're not going to go through all of the basics. We're going to hit the hardcore issues right off, but just for some of the listeners who might be tuning in for the first time or they might not be familiar with traditional Native customs, it's actually common practice for us in our nations for us to ask each other where we're from, what's our community, sometimes even who are your parents? Who are your grandparents? Uh, who are you related to? In fact, sometimes when we introduce ourselves, that's where we start. You know, my grandfather was this person or my grandmother was this person and, and so on and so forth. And we always include reference to our home community, our nation or our relatives, sometimes our clans and houses. Basically, we situate ourselves. And for me, that's always been one of the red flags when I ask someone just naturally, because it's such a habit, uh, when I come across someone who says that they're Indigenous, it's like, oh, where are you from? And they instantaneously get offended 
or they respond with some kind of vague reference to heritage or ancestry and they can't really locate where they're from. Kim, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about this custom and why we do it and why it's so important. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's often you'll hear people um, kind of express the stereotypical notion, our ancestors are strength, right? Um, which is true. Our ancestors can be a source of strength, um, but they're also our baggage. <laughs> so, you know, who we, how we are perceived in Indigenous community and across, you know, pan-Indigenous spaces is um, often to some degree about who our relatives are. I mean, it's not because we come from communal, commun you know, communities that emphasize communalism, right? And then emphasize uh, relatedness. So it's not who you are, quote unquote, is not really mostly or only about you as an individual. Who you are depends on, or how you are perceived in those communities. Who are your grandparents? Who are your parents? You know, I've I've gone around. It, I'm from the United States, and and I've got a family that have been very active in politics and different kinds of native organizations over decades across the country, both in tribal and national kinds of um, venues, and. People will, I'll have to say who my family is. And sometimes that's an asset. Oh, this is my mom or this was my my uncle. Sometimes it's not an asset, right? And that's kind of what happens. This is this is the deal when you come from indigenous community. And I think people who um, not even just people that are fraudulently making claims, but people who who do have legitimate claims to be related to us, but who didn't grow up around that, sometimes I I think have a much more individualistic worldview and their idea is about who I am as an individual uh, and because they haven't been raised in a place where who they are as an individual is very much entangled with who their family is and who their relatives are. So um, I think, you know, also because we're all related and, and we say tribal communities in the U.S., you have to know how you're related to people. Are you cousins? Well, then you better not date. You know, there's there's pragmatic reasons as well because we are all related. We need to know. We need to know how that works. Yeah, very pragmatic indeed, especially when you come from a First Nation like mine and there's like 300 people on the res. You better know who you're related to. Um, you know, just a follow-up question, Kim, because you've been on this Warrior Life podcast before and I've heard you, you know, read your writings and heard you speak in the media and, of course, Media Indigena. Um, about this issue of identity versus relationship in the context of people claiming indigeneity, you know, on ancestors from like hundreds of years ago, for example, versus living relationships with community. And can you expand on this? Why you consider it's like the relationship is really more important than this concept of identity? I've been saying a lot lately, I think that um, identity is a poor substitute for relations. So again, because it's, and I'm getting this like allergy to this word, you know, and so I'm always putting it in scare quotes now. I think um, settler state culture thinks we're talking about identity, or maybe it's just a distraction. So uh, again, it's a, it's an individualized concept and it's often related to our biology, which is something I study, right? I wrote a book called Native American DNA. So, so people can think identity is about a biological link to a certain nation, uh, but it can also be a social and cultural link. But at any rate, it becomes very much individualized. And when I did a, I did a search recently on Shutterstock for an article I'm writing for visuals and 90% of the visuals around identity were, were about standing out as an individual. They were about who am I as an individual? This is not what we're talking about when we're talking about defending indigenous rights as collective rights when, and those, and those rights and relationships are about us as peoples and our responsibilities with, to land and place. Right? So, 
um, that's why I think identity does us a huge disservice. We're really talking about maintaining relations. Uh, our relations to land have been disrupted. Our relations to our children and our ancestors have been disrupted. And the theft of children and incarceration in residential schools, the theft of bones, blood, and DNA, the theft of our biological data, in addition to land and resources. So really what we're talking about, the whole settler colonial project is about disrupting our relations about with our relatives. This is not about who am I as an individual. And I think we should, I, I would plead with people to stop using that word or think when they use that word, whenever they can, are you talking about identity or are you talking about a set of relations? And this is where I think people that are disconnected from community, from indigenous communities, uh, whether they have a right to be connected or, or they don't um, miss the mark. You know, they they are not understanding these claims to uh, sustaining and rehabilitating relations. They're thinking it's about me as an individual. And um, the degree to which we can move the conversation away from that, I think, is helpful. Oh, that it's so important, especially how you're talking about this disruption and theft, theft of land and theft of culture and theft of children. And and so um, Winona on this theme of theft and identity theft, you know, I've seen it in the media called appropriation or kind of like accidental, unintentional usurping of Indigenous identity. And I've also seen it described as outright fraud and opportunism. And you just wrote an important article called Indigenous Identity Fraud in the Academy about this so-called phenomena of race shifting or pretendism, arguing that this should in fact be considered fraud and academic misconduct in a university context. Can you expand on that just a little bit? Yeah, thanks, Pam. The little piece that I wrote, it was only about three pages long and I wrote it for um, our University of Saskatchewan Union Faculty Association newsletter, because the reality is university people have no idea they're clueless and they don't understand what all the kerfuffle was about in the national media. Um, the vast majority, I'd say, there's always a handful that, that are clued in a bit. So I wrote this article to explain to them what it was and to explain the impact it has on students. So um, I figured that was the fastest way to get information out there. Um, it comes from, I mean, everything that Kim is saying is so important. And, and back in, do you remember back in 2015 when the Andrea Smith issue, um, fraud issue, identity fraud issue arose, we had uh, the Native American Indigenous Studies Association. We did a, we did a statement on Indigenous identity fraud and we stipulated way back then, you know, it's not that we're excluding everybody else who's non-Indigenous from participating in our life and, and research, but it's the integrity, it's the honesty, it's the relationships um, that that we really um, highlight and that we want to promote and, and that you, you need to be honest about. Um, and so based on that, I, I did this article. Um, the reality is, is that when it broke out, when the Kerry Barassa issue broke out at the University of Saskatchewan, our students were absolutely devastated. You know, they were they were just devastated. I mean, we expect Indigenous scholars to come into the classroom with a whole bundle of Indigenous um, experiential knowledge to, to be able to speak from the heart, to speak from experience, to speak from our relatives and our ancestors' experience. Um, and so all these years, students have been listening to her and then discovered that 
she appropriated and stole all of those experiences that they weren't hers. She, she fabricated them. So on an emotional level, you have students that were devastated. And then you've got this whole whack of graduate students who are dependent on, on her, for example, for their, um, for their livelihood right now, especially those she's supervising or those who are working as research assistants. Um, sitting, you know, she's sitting on committees, she's supervising, she's paying for research assistant positions and giving grants to. So our students were absolutely demoralized. Um, and I, I really think it's important for people to know that it's not just an identity thing, right? That it has a huge impact on a lot of different people. Well, exactly. And I've heard, you know, the in the social media world of uh, pretendians fighting back, saying that what we're doing as Indigenous scholars or people calling for accountability is we're creating an unsafe, harmful place for Indigenous students who are now fearful to identify as Indigenous and versus what we actually hear from Indigenous students saying, this is horrendous to actually have been misled this whole time, to have learned from someone who they don't even know if the quality of the academic content that they were getting is true. Have they been misled? Have they been miseducated? And they worry about how that impacts them when they go to apply, say, to grad school and say, oh, but I was associated with that person. So maybe I didn't learn what I needed to know. And so I feel like every time we raise an issue around harm to students or things like that, you know, those with the fraudulent identities are saying we are the ones causing the harm and hurting students and other faculty. I mean, how, how do you respond to that, Winona? Well, that's just their self-defense mechanisms, right? I mean, honesty and truth is more valuable than lies, right? I mean, students want to know the truth. They don't want to live under a pack of lies. Um, and, and I feel so sorry for students who have the names of pretend Indians on their dissertations or their theses, um, and they're looking for work, right? Um, it's, it's going to be really hard. People are going to question. Other people are going to question. So when they do that, it's just a self-defense mechanism. And they it's amazing that some who get caught will fight tooth and nail with everything they have at their disposal to hang on to, quote unquote, their identity, right? And then to blame other people. And I've been charged with lateral violence. I've been accused of lateral violence. I've been accused of internalized colonial violence. I've been accused of all sorts of wacko things. When basically what I'm doing, trying to do is stand up for the students, stand up for the younger faculty who don't have a voice in university and to call this crap out. Exactly. And I think it's important that, you know, people understand it's not just a few famous people. And Valden, this is what I want to talk to you about, because recently, we all know what happened at Queen's University. We're not even picking on any particular university. This is like happening at universities all across the country, will likely happen at mine pretty soon. But at Queen's University, a large group of Indigenous academics, uh, including all of us, signed an open letter to Queen's calling them out for doubling down and defending a number of staff who had been called out as not being Indigenous, not having Indigenous ancestry, Indigenous community connections, and, and not siding with the Indigenous staff, faculty, and students who 
would be impacted so negatively impacted by what this happened and i'm and i'm wondering like you made a really like in this letter they there was an important argument around how when they did that they were essentially attacking our nationhood sovereignty and autonomy to decide who is out who is a citizen of ours and who isn't and and i'm wondering for people who maybe not be familiar with that letter if you can explain what we were talking about there Sure. Yeah. Um, well, to go back just a little bit because of Winona's remarks on the Academy, uh, you know, shortly after Carrie Barassa came out, Dr. Chris Anderson, who's the Dean of Native Studies at the University of Alberta, um, Kim's uh, faculty, is he had an opinion piece too. And it really highlights the point that universities are spectacularly poor at their approach to understanding or shoring up pretendians at the expense of Indigenous peoples. Like they... It, it can be harmful, just as you say. And in Queens in specific, because it touches on my nation, there was a lot of um, pretendings that were pointed out in that particular report who were uh, claiming to be Algonquin. And how this becomes an issue of uh, our nationhood and sovereignty and autonomy is that um, it infringes upon our internal ability to determine who we are, who constitutes the body politic. So... You know, for the longest time, we've been reduced to races, oftentimes cultural flavors. What do we do? What do we wear? What do we eat? What have you? Uh, but not anyone who had developed sophisticated political communities, the ones where we had citizenship and we could determine our modes of internal governance and how we relate to other nations and what have you. So in the whole scheme of sort of European Western thinking, race was used to divide nations to determine who could rule and who would be ruled um, so that they could never achieve that seat of government. But for the Algonquins here, it becomes really acute because we are 38 years into, well, 30 years after the negotiations began, the largest modern treaty negotiations in Ontario's history for 36,000 square kilometers of our territory. Most of the Algonquin nation is in the province of what we know today as Quebec. But right now we have uh, we have this organization that's sort of materialized in the last 15 years, calling themselves the Algonquins of Ontario. Now, the claim was initiated by my small community that back in 1983, when we sent a letter to the governor general, uh, you know, as a petition, as we had since the 18th century, saying we would need you to recognize our territorial title. We've never ceded or modified title and our rights therein. But now we have individuals coming out of the woodwork and we're so close to the finish line. Most people don't know these days, but since May, my community has actually stepped away from the negotiation table and even the events, what has transpired at Queens that has, you know, inflamed antagonisms towards what we view as, you know, a, a vessel for pretendians to extinguish our title. So it's, it's really damaging to us. Uh, you know, it undermines our sovereignty, our rights to dispose and, you know, govern over our territory as we'd seen fit. Uh, you know, we're not going to rejuvenate it now. We, we are probably as they predict two years away from concluding the treaty. We, we, uh, we signed an agreement in principle, or at least it was ratified by these new sort of communities that popped up in the last 15 years or so. And we'd said, you know, in when my community, we said, these aren't really Algonquins. And some of them were the ones that were, you know, making claims to individuals who were 500 years old and saying, well, now we're going to be Algonquin just for this purpose, because they're not going to become status or become communities, uh, but they're going to sign away our rights and title. And 
my community actually after the 2016 ratification said you know what the majority of us we had a referendum internally and said no we want we don't want this deal anymore it's a pandora's box where our well as a democratic procedure for ratification we're now the minority that's going to be overridden by the views and you know impulses of pretendians who have no problem writing down their name on an eventual treaty that will give it away because they have nothing to lose and that's and exactly it's a treaty yeah and the crown is not likely to turn it over and give it back not in the next 100 200 i think it's forever and um yeah it hurts a lot of us so and i don't think the general public thinks about the the kinds of harms we are obviously talking about harms to students harms to indigenous faculty um harms but the harms extend and directly impact all of our communities all of our first nations uh in these very profound ways it gets tied up in theft of land theft of rights theft of all of these uh you know basically hijacking these processes now it's been called lots of things you know fraud, theft, appropriation. Um, one of the ways in which it's been described is settler self-indigenization. So Valden, if you had to kind of say in a nutshell for just say someone is listening and they don't even know what settler self-indigenization is, how would you explain that? Oh, there's a no number of ways. And I think in Chris Anderson's opinion piece, he kind of points out that there's almost now a predictable script there is a trajectory and a narrative that they'll adopt for themselves to create a backstory. It's really far back in history, but they bring it up to now is that they're rediscovering it. Uh, what it is, is, well, you know, the other, the term that um, in Canada, but in, in the United States, uh, Sir Strum, uh, Sturm uh, and Dr. Daryl LaRue has done in his magnificent work, uh, Distorted Descents, brought the idea of race shifting is otherwise non-Indigenous, typically white and in the case of what we see in, in eastern Canada anyways a lot of French descendants uh, in, in even your territory Mi'kma'ki because we've seen this sort of wave move westward and it's into Algonquin territory now is mm -hmm. erstwhile settlers becoming or maintaining a new sort of found identity as they would say and and, I, and i'll use sort of the cringe that i think uh dr Talbert and dr wheeler's you know i think underscored here is yeah is as the identity but not necessarily not at all in relationhood but um they become indigenized themselves in a very socially constructed or individually constructed it's it's not at all social Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I like how you mentioned that there's this trend or pattern because you can see it, you know, one day they come in and they're wearing some mm -hmm. kind of sinew necklace and they're talking about the spirit helpers bringing them to their identity and trying to set up like this barrier that you can't contest. And they're like, Ooh, it's almost new agey in some cases, you know, um, but I'd really like to kind of transition now into some of the comments, the reactions, the th the messages that I get on social media from people, um, things that I hear on a regular basis, because once you even talk about this issue, you get a lot of people responding saying, how dare you, including those who file actual complaints. But Winona, I've heard academic 
administrators in a multitude of universities that I have been to say, it's not our place to decide who's Indigenous. Um, so we have no choice but to rely on self-identification. And I know you address this in your article. What's your response to an institution that says, oh, there's nothing we can do? Well, they're kind of full of it. Um, they have absolutely no business whatsoever <clears throat> defining it or who is and who is not Indigenous. Absolutely not. That's none of their business. <clears throat> that all falls under Indigenous jurisdiction. What universities need to do, I mean, they're all talking Indigenization. They're all talking about decolonizing the academy, but that requires systemic and structural change, which most universities are just not prepared to do. And here is a, an excellent example of where that kind of systemic and structural change needs to happen, because the university needs to create a space in the structure, in the procedures, in the systems for Indigenous people to do this, right? for Indigenous people to, to take authority over that and jurisdiction over um, the whole quote-unquote identity issue. So um, we'll see if that's going to happen. I mean, there's some discussion starting to happen at the University of Saskatchewan, for example, where they want to talk about, okay, how do we facilitate this? A lot of the faculty and staff are saying, we're the ones from here. We're the ones that have the community connections, the community networks. Um, and so we want to be involved in this process, you know, and if so, if somebody is applying and they're for any kind of position, even if it's an Indigenous target position, or if it's an Indigenous content position even, and they're, they're identifying as Indigenous, we've got a wide enough network we can track this down. So you're telling me you're Mi'kma'ki. Okay, we got people. We got people over there. We got friends over there. We can call up old aunties. We can call up, um, you know, to our network to get verification. And if you can't provide that, then clearly you're not. If you can't, and my my mom, late mom, used to say, if you can't provide an auntie or a cookum, then you're not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's all there is to it, right? Your aunties and your cookums—they're the ones that tell you who you are and where you're from. So the university, um, I think they're just being, yeah, they're just hiding behind that. But they, yeah. they need to create space. And the other thing that they're doing is because it's such a sensitive issue, they're not looking at it in its legal context for what it is. It is fraud, identity fraud. You know, you fake it and you're you're accessing, um, accessing positions, power, authority, grants um, under this fraud, right? And all universities, I know we have academic misconduct regulations. And one of them in our university is impersonation. Impersonation is academic misconduct. But the university haven't even gone there yet, right? So yeah, the issue is about integrity um, with the universities. I mean, does our university have integrity? Are they gonna stand up for, for what's right and call it for what it is? or they just kind of try and skirt around it. Yeah, it, it amazes me to think that that would be the response. We can't, there's nothing we can do because it's not us to do it. It's like, yeah, that's right. But you've got like indigenous faculty and you've got communities you can partner with. How about you set up some accountability system? It just amazes me that they just can't think beyond, well, either we do it or nothing can happen because yeah. nobody else can have a say in this. And Kim, I get so many messages from people every time I do a podcast about this or talk in the media where people say that it is a form of colonization to ask someone to prove 
who they are by asking them, hey, where are you from? You know, who's your relatives? And they've even suggested or sent messages saying that it's it's not just colonized thinking, it's lateral violence and creating unsafe spaces and harassment and discrimination. Um, all that just sounds like a red flag to me. But what's your response to, to people who say that, that it's lateral violence to even ask the question? I mean, I don't know the history of the term lateral violence. I don't know why we can't just use the term violence if that's what the accusation is. I mean, our very charge is that they're not our laterals. <laughs> so I don't know where the term lateral violence, it presupposes the um, the answer already, the very answer that we're critiquing, which is that they're not related to us. So yeah, I, I, um, I mean, we have to it's, it is part of our custom to ask. It's like Winona was saying, right. And I also wanted to go back to something Veldon was saying, everything that they're both saying, it just illustrates that this is not about identity politics. We're actually not talking about identity. This is really very practically a struggle for resources, land and governmental jurisdiction. That's what's going on. And that's what is actually being challenged. And I think we need to be clear to always bring the spotlight back to that. So I might have missed part of your the rest of your question, Pam, because I do have some. Um, yeah, no, I was basically just saying, like, how do you respond to people who are saying it's colonized thinking, it's offensive, oh, it's harassment, it's discrimination, it's like all yeah. of these things. I mean, what is, I don't know, do they have an idea? Just because we're, we will challenge settler colonial standards for how we should be identified and how we should be categorized. But it's not that we have no standards. I mean, we have rules, right? As Winona was saying. So I don't know what people think. Like, we're like, like this is like Bambi and we're just out in the field all, you know, <laughs> singing. Like we have standards and rules, you know, to, to be part of an indigenous community is it's not a free for all. There are rules. I was thinking about this too. You know, I've been pounced on. I have do, two very specific memories pounced on first by somebody who years later I found out was making fraudulent claims to identity. Uh, I, when I asked, we were at a meeting together and I said, oh, is that like a typical Cherokee custom? Cause I'm not Cherokee. I'm from South Dakota, you know, and Cherokees are kind of foreign to me. And they said, how would I know? I'm like, cause you're Cherokee. Like really they pounced on me hard. And I was taken aback. Like I was much younger. Like, did I do something wrong? But I've also been pounced on by somebody who's legitimately, they're, they're legitimately related to an indigenous community. They are. I found out later they grew up away from that community. And the reaction, when I asked both of them, do you know this person? Do you know that person? What tribe are you? Cause we say that, that in the U S where are you from? They, so so it's not just the people making fraudulent claims. There are people who grew up away from community that get very sensitive about this stuff. But this is the baggage of, you know, this is both, again, an asset and it's baggage. When you grow up in indigenous community, for better and for worse, people judge you by who your family is. I've been at a meeting giving a talk and somebody was grimacing at me in the front row. And I thought they were my mom's friend. I called her after. I'm like, what's going on? This person was grimacing me. Oh, her, they got in a fight. I'm like, what's that got to do with me? But but it does have a lot to do with me, right? Like my mom is there. My grandparents are there. And it's not always an asset. Sometimes it's a burden. And when people say this is uncomfortable, especially people who want to reconnect, yeah, tell me about it. We live our whole lives with that discomfort in indigenous community. You want to be connected? Well, you better get ready for the discomfort. This is yeah. not all happy, you know, holding hands. Um, this is real community. Community is not always fun. Sometimes it's hard. Exactly. And I think it's important to state here, or maybe I should have said it at the very beginning, that 
when we're talking about pretendians and people committing fraud and appropriation, we're not talking about people who were disconnected because of residential schools or the 60s scoop or the Indian Act or any of those like direct colonial interventions where people are now trying to reconnect legitimately. We're talking about the real frauds and opportunists and fakes and and all of that stuff. But I think those making fraudulent claims are are really cynically taking the narratives of the disconnected and using them to their benefit. And that's why we need to keep stating, you know, there is a place for people to connect. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to choose it. It's not easy to stay connected when you grow up in community sometimes, right? It's hard. There are divisions as well as as welcoming open arms. There are both. So yeah, yeah, no, and that's a that's a really good point, um, Valden. I- I've got to ask you because you know you and I talk about these issues all the time. But I find in the last few months, especially, I don't know what it w- is. You know, just before the Carrie Barassa situation, I've seen you know my colleagues being contacted or me being contacted by a whole raft of people looking for references from a chief an elder, a native organization, or just any indigenous person they know to give them a reference to say, I know so-and-so, I accept so-and-so, uh, or I work in their indigenous community. And I've, and I've even heard people say out loud that they want to rely on those reference letters as their proof of community acceptance, which is ergo their proof of being indigenous. Uh, Surely that can't be what community acceptance is or our sovereignty and autonomy is all about. Right. And I think this segues from what Kim was just talking about. This is not a free for all. Um, when you have legitimate political institutions and citizenship being one, uh, you know, we've we've had our territorial um, invasions occur and, you know, attempted conquests and colonialism, the, you know, dispossession of us and displacement of us as people. But uh Rebuilding and asserting Indigenous sovereignty entails a couple of things, Uh, you know, erecting the boundaries of territorial divisions between other Indigenous nations and what agreements you might have with one another, but also how you constitute that body politics. So who is a citizen? And it's not a free for all. And we actually around the world is is a very much an international norm. And it's become a little bit more pronounced, too, in the last two decades in the post 9-11 era is that. Um, we all travel and cross borders with um, a passport. Now it used to be the case that you can go into the United States with a driver's license and cross. And, but it was still the government of, um, or the state providing a guarantee to other state officials of, I know who this person is and we claim them as a member of our political body. Uh, And when we say, you know what, we are we did have sophisticated institutions we understood who we are and we under, we engaged in you know the civic sort of activities of um uh you know understanding and, and renewing our nations through different peoples and we understood who we were is that um it isn't you know a, a house with all different sort of back doors for other people to come walking into and it shows a profound disrespect for us is that it's just something there for, and sorry, I have to use Chris Sanderson again. When he uses the analogy with uh, the Métis identity is like a soup kitchen for people just to come and go as they, they please take what they want. But uh, you know, it's not lax like that. And, and, you know, it goes towards undermining the legitimacy of indigenous nationhood of us having 
again, complex structures of governance, which have long been dismantled, but we're trying to hold on to the remnants or at least uh, reconstitute, rebuild them. And, you know, every time we try to do that, we have someone coming along and saying, no, you know what? I danced at a powwow and the chief saw me and um, or I'm doing work in that community. And just this sort of proximity narrative is that um, I want my buddy to vouch for me. Well, it just it doesn't work for any other nation, but they seem to have to uh, downplay the status of us or create like a second class nationhood um, to such an extent that really it is a profound disrespect for us. It's not a job application. You, you don't submit a letter of reference from someone <laughs> who like vouches for you. Like just because it's, it's it just reminds me of the I'm not racist. Mm-hmm. My best friend is indigenous. Now it's like I'm indigenous because my best friend yeah. is indigenous and says I'm a cool person. That that's not community acceptance to me. Can I just give an illustrative little story? Indian Country Today, the sort of national native newspaper in the United States, published an article, I think, last week or the week before. And this uh, person who is eligible for tribal citizenship in, in one of the U.S. federally recognized tribes, the article was on them uh, declining to be to, to be enrolled or to have citizenship and because they didn't want to be on a list of Indians. And I'll, what that does is it speaks to the profound disregard and disempowerment of tribal nation governance, because I bet you that person doesn't function without a state ID. And if they leave the country, they don't do that without a U.S. passport. So I'm sure they're willing because they have to, to be on a list of state citizens and U.S. citizens, but a list of tribal citizens is somehow colonial. I mean, we live inside a colonial edifice, but all it did was speak to how disempowered tribes are. Mm-hmm. That's all it did. It was, but it was, it was portrayed as some kind of moral choice. I was kind of disappointed in that. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, there's just so many things mm-hmm. about this. It's it's so upsetting. So like, I have a, I have a list of things that I've uh, heard people saying in in social media, um, comebacks, basically, to kinds of the things that we're saying. And I'd, and I'd love to get your reaction and feel free, you know, just to jump in if you if you have something to add. But um, Winona, I've heard someone say that they're indigenous because they are, quote, community involved. They do research with the community. They've worked and volunteered with the community. And that's a form of community acceptance. Ergo, they are Indigenous. No, at, minimum, at, at the very least, it's just allyship. It's, it's craziness, right? Um, it's like, you know, me going to Australia and working with Pitmanjara people and a family taking me in and calling me daughter and calling me sister. And I walk away from that community and suddenly I'm Pitmanjara and I start speaking on their behalf. I mean, that's craziness, right? They accept me um, while I'm there as a member of their family, as long as I'm contributing, right? If I wander away and I don't come back, you know, I don't think that that relationship will be extended that long. But you hear that a lot. You know, the community accepts me. I do good work in the community. And there are people doing good work in the community. There's no denying that. But it doesn't mean you are us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And what's wrong with being a friend, yeah. a relative, an ally, a supporter? Uh, you know, what's wrong with being that and owning that? Instead of also now we have to go from supporter to appropriator of these things. I'm not even sure how some exactly you can't claim resources if you know necessarily, right? 
I mean, you don't have to, it's like Winona says, you can be a relative without being us. I mean, we all, I have relatives in different tribal nations, right? I have relatives in different countries who speak different languages. I have relatives across different racial categories that I don't belong to, both biological and made. Yeah, this is not that hard. No. <laughs> Unless you're trying to make a resource grab, yeah. Okay, well, here's, here's a skill testing one for you, Kim. Spirit helpers guided me to my identity and no native person has the right to dispute my ancestors. Uh, I don't. Yeah, I wouldn't even know what that means. So they're the the spirits are the their ancestors and their spirits are the same. Oh, yes. and so they're, they're the spirits of their ancestors came back and called them back into this. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that's also a mark of. Um, again, when I listen to people who grew up in indigenous community, we're we know sure we talk about our ancestors. They're important, right? And we all have important kind of ancestors who were figureheads in our cultures who did important historical things to keep the people together, especially, or some kind of were traitors to the people, but whatever. <laughs> but but really what what kind of coheres us are living people. I think I am I am very it's a red flag to me when all somebody can do is point to ancestors in the past. I mean, if, if they can't point to an ongoing living community, and I wrote a piece on my Substack, we are not your dead ancestors. We are living communities. And if all you can do is point to a bunch of dead Indians and bones, and I don't mean to be disrespectful of our ancestors mm -hmm. and their bones, because they have been, you know, desecrated. But that's not what we're talking about. I mean, those ancestors are related to and help make the way for the living indigenous communities that exist today. Um, and it, it's, it re you must have, it requires connection to living peoples uh, who have a cultural and governance authorities. This isn't just about finding some bones and making some kind of claim to that. No, so yeah. important. Velden I want to carry that further if you don't mind. I mean, when yeah. somebody pulls the spirituality thing on you, it's a way to shut you down. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's a violent way to shut you down because who wants to challenge somebody's spirituality? But the reality is in my among my people anyway your spirituality is very very personal that that's your gig and you got no right to impose that on anybody else but by them imposing it on everybody else they're using it as a weapon yes it that's so dishonorable to actually use something so important like that as a weapon um Velden, how about this? Is this a red flag? It's always been my life dream to be part of an Indigenous community, and I've done the hard work to be part of an Indigenous community. Therefore, I am Indigenous. So, you know, it, we're on a couple of examples now, and they almost all sound absurd, but I can guarantee to anyone watching this today that we've all heard these a dozen times, probably in the last month alone. Uh, I was just sort of giggling at the spirit helper mentioned earlier you you hear some sort of version of this and then doing the hard work is somehow this some sort of spirit helper i don't i don't even know what that is that you know that is the new agey nonsense too um somehow mm, you're an apprentice or something to become in, indigenous uh there's also in in those kind of ideas the fetishism for us i've always wanted to be indigenous uh you know that's some sort of racial arrogance to be able to discard your own you know, history and situatedness to just say, I'm going to move over there. I'm going to take up that idea identity because uh, we certainly can't. I'm fairly white passing, but, um, and I can move through life in, in a lot of white spaces. There are features of me that I just can't shape and leave behind. Um, 
but also what Kim says is the the community of you know I don't know what kind of hard work it is to go onto online genealogy forums to connect to um, you know bones and dust is that they are and 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 to be respectful too as as Kim points out is that I've mentioned this to you a couple of times in the last year so the narrative suggests to me is the community they are looking for is in the graveyard but we are a living community. Uh, it's not a dead community. We're not, you know, zombies. And I can't remember, I, I read something from an Australian scholar recently is um, something along the lines of what Kim said, we are not your dead ancestors. Um, but to, to do this hard work, uh, you know, I don't know what's harder. Like, I don't know how easier it can be to be born. Our, our life is, can be often very difficult um, under colonial circumstances, but uh is try as you might like is this some sort of performance and production that they want to put on uh you know because they end up looking like the well they they are the charlatans who are the you know community involved that you talked about earlier is somehow they glean some sort of knowledge from proximity uh again i come from a mixed family where i don't have any ancestry for um anuk being an inuit at all but i do have um uh two family members can't claim it sorry and they and i would hope that they would laugh forever thinking that my community involvement with them <laughs> entitled me to any sort of set of political rights and and responsibilities and claims but uh what hard work i yeah it's a, it's a hobby for some of these people it's a fetish yeah yeah it it really is and so i've got three more and oh some of these just make me ill but this one's for Kim because she's written so much about this you know native DNA and ancestry and all of that um what about the person who says I have native blood that runs through my veins there is blood memory in that blood uh and so no one can deny my native ancestry even if it's 400 years ago yeah I mean I I often say ancestry alone is not a claim Right. I mean, we all, you know, I have ancestry among multiple other indigenous peoples that I do not identify with. I wasn't raised among them. I have ancestry among European peoples that I, they did not raise me. I've never been to those places. I don't know those cultures at all. Um, so it would be disingenuous, I think, to claim that. Um, so I think, so, I mean, this runs in again to this sort of uh, conflation or I just, so I think even sometimes there's alleged ancestry and it's not actual, but sometimes there is actual ancestry a long time ago, right? But again, ancestry alone is not a claim, whether it's there or not. Now, I think I understand sometimes people's confusion because, and I'll speak for the U.S. because I know tribal citizenship rules down there. We, you know, I don't know a tribe anymore. Uh, there might be a couple that do citizenship based on uh, marriage into the tribe or adopted, legally adopted children. Before World War II, that was actually quite common when most natives were on the reservation, 90% of natives were on the reservation. It was easy to know who everybody was related to, whether by blood or whether by marriage or whatever, or adoption, you know. But with urbanization in World War II, and you have 75% of natives moving off the reservation and into urban areas, tribes suddenly get much more careful about documenting biological ancestry. But again, this isn't simply internalized colonization, what they are doing is responding to the overwhelming political and economic power of the settler state. We are always responding to the political economy of the settler state and a global economy. We, we do not have the power to match theirs. So, so when people say, well, we're just supposed to do these traditional um, citizenship forms, first of all, uh, traditions are dynamic. 
uh, that's true. But it's all it's it's not just that. It's it's very difficult to juxtapose tradition and what we want to do in a world in which we are at a severe power imbalance, right? And so, yes, we do use forms of ancestry, but I think what's important in that is that we're trying to figure out which forms of ancestry to use. How can we both manage our communities? I mean, we struggle on this line between being inclusive of our own relations and not making it just an open kind of free-for-all, right? It's a very difficult position to be in. So I do have a lot of sympathy for the struggles that that community, Indigenous communities have mm. in trying to balance this. And I am I am never okay with people saying we're simply internalizing colonialism. That tells me they haven't lived in those communities and seen the everyday struggle of how we have to deal with these things legally, right? Culturally, politically, and economically. It's a constant struggle. It is. And the way in which they misinterpret, misuse, and misadapt stereotype and generalize what's a native custom or what's a tradition. Winona, this one's for you. What do you say to the person who, well, I have a friend in this community and as an adult, he adopted me into the community because that's native custom that adoptions are allowed. So I am therefore a native person. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit already earlier. No, you're not a native when you get adopted. You know, I've been adopted by Pitmanjaro people. I've been adopted by Scottish people. I've been adopted by many people to be a relative. I'm a member of their family because they love me. You know, it's a relationship thing. I can't speak on behalf of them. But I am not them. You know, I I am I'm not Pitmanjaro. I'm I'm not Santee. Um, no, it's being adopted by a family is an honor, but it's the family. You got no right to speak on behalf of the nation or the community. Absolutely none. And to me, it's like a misuse of our traditional forms of adoption where we would take in kids from our sisters, our brothers, or even the next door community or whatever. We were constantly adopting children. Like that kind of adoption is a far cry from as an adult being honored because someone wants to adopt you into their family versus that making you indigenous. Well, it's um, taken on the role now of getting an Indian name, remember? Oh, getting yes. Getting Indian name is a pretty popular gig too. <sighs> it's become very much um, similar to that stream. Mm. Big bucks as well. Okay, yeah. so the last one before we wrap up, Veldon, saved it for you. I'm a card-carrying member of Métis XYZ organization, so I'm Indigenous and you don't have any right mm. to question my ancestry. Oh, yes. So <laughs> there's a lot. I mean, I mean, you know, that's also a problem on Algonquin territory. We actually have a lawsuit now against both the province of Ontario and um, and it's not coming from the Algonquins of Ontario, but it's coming from my community. Uh, we initiated a civil suit against the Métis Nation of Ontario because they started letting anyone you know, in the world onto their list. But we also have a case and it's, it's not necessarily me, but it's, um, you know, folks just North of me and on, in Kitagon Zibi, which is another Algonquin first nation, about an hour and a half North of Ottawa. Uh, they're in Quebec superior courts, uh, arguing, uh, and they were just granted intervener status a few weeks ago in a case where an individual who's claiming to be Métis and it's like this Manawaki Métis, organization and and they come up with some of these ridiculous names like these you know make a metis club as i call them run out of some 
you know, nitwits basement buffoon that just wants to go through the ancestry boards and, uh, you know, charge any imbecile who will pay, you know, 25, 50 bucks for a five year membership into um, Joe's Métis Club um, just because they'll find. And this really is is also deeply insulting to our nations is because they, they even go so far now as sometimes to say, well, if you're Inuit, if you have any sort of Inuit background, we'll make you Métis. Uh, so all you have to do is have sort of native ancestry as it is. And uh, it's an affront to the Métis nation itself um, for how they constitute themselves as a people. Uh, and it is uh, undermines other legitimate indigenous nations where perhaps somebody legitimately is, is reconnected and are disconnected from, you know, not to, you know, a distant intergenerational gap. Like the discontinuity may not necessarily be there, but um it would be rightful for Algonquins to reclaim legitimate Algonquins. Yet some, you know, dope running some, you know, ancestry organization, you know, and they're pop up everywhere. It, it's become obnoxious and it's fed into post-secondary and, and, and to another extent, the arts, but um, you see it as something to shore up their claims on checking the boxes now for employment equity or for targeted positions. It's, it's, it's insidious and it's rampant through post-secondary education. I think almost all of our institutions have seen this sort of nonsensical club. Like, and and that's all it is. It's an affiliation. It's not a nation, and um, it lacks everything that we just spoke about too. Um, yeah. You know, I just wanted to touch on what when I want to brought up too about adoption, and this is again goes to the point that we're, we've been reduced to races as incapable and and not quite advanced enough to. Uh, you know, attain the status of nations and thereby being able to govern ourselves is that I have, and the example I used is about being Inuit or having community involvement with Inuit is that I have two adopted daughters who have zero, no Algonquin ancestry whatsoever. Uh, one is half black um, and they're Inuit and they're claimed under the NTI, their treaty organization is that um, and and they do have a membership. Uh, actually, my my oldest, uh, they're they're young, but um, my nation and and I just haven't. I've been too lazy to put in the paperwork to to get citizenship. We have a custom citizenship code for the Algonquins of Pequawkmagon. Is that they're duly recognized? So were we to use race, and this is how they use the back door and they reify race by always insisting upon what is obviously, you know, de facto biological determinism is that they'll follow lineal descent as though it can be passed. Even if there is huge generational or intergenerational discontinuities, um, they're claiming someone who wasn't even alive when their great grandparents were alive. So the transmission is questionable, but still the same is we can have, anyone who's non-Indigenous adopted within the um, boundaries of the rules that we set for ourselves, that we constitute that body politics. Sorry that if I keep going on and on and on no, about no. that, it's just, you know, being the political scientist in me. But um, we have even white settlers who are adopted legitimately, like in accordance with the laws, not just some sort of hokey um, ceremony that they did out in the woods or like, you know, you know, their friend just said, yeah, I'm going to adopt you as my own. And they might think that entails a whole lot, but you know, I could be adopted by someone else. Like, you know, when I want to mention Scottish and I doubt that in the last couple of years with the Scottish referendum, the Scottish would recognize that enough for them to modify 
their sort of sovereignty when they were voting on independence or whatnot. So, uh, you know, it's why is it sufficient for us that they can just walk into the door or come in the back door and say, I'm going to change the whole look of everything or like now outwardly represent you and make a whole host of like charlatan sort of ask, um, misrepresentations about them but um it, it it's insulting to those that we've legitimately adopted mm-hmm. in accordance and, and even like you know they may come from settler backgrounds so yeah exactly and mm-hmm. and i find this 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 onslaught of metis organizations especially the fraudulent ones or the ones that were white supremacist organizations before they were metis organizations they actually hurt <laughs> the name of the real metis people <laughs> you know it's it it's kind of like and and of course, in the East Coast, it's like they're Métis Mi'kmaq. So basically, they've made the Mi'kmaq people like the Cherokee in the United States, where everyone's claiming to be Mi'kmaq, everyone's claiming to be Métis. That hurts the Mi'kmaq, it hurts the Métis, it hurts us. It does so much damage. And then they use it for, as you know, from Daryl LaRue's studies, this, this political purpose to stop land claims, to stop treaties, to acquire. It's basically what Kim's been saying. It's this struggle for power and land and resources and everything that you've been saying. And I feel like we could just be talking about this for hours and hours and hours. And I know it's not easy. None of us like doing this. None of us like to have to do this. This is just, (laughs) this is the current reality and it's impacting us. And I just, I really want to thank you all for sharing your insights about the problem, how it manifests in different places, what universities and other peoples could be doing AKA letting indigenous peoples and communities working these things out um, and setting up whatever processes and, and responding to some of that like utter ridiculousness that we get in terms of responses all the time. I, like, I get a lot of questions. How do I, how do I respond to this? This sounds like a red flag. I think most of what we talked about, sounds like pretty big red flags. So <laughs> thank you all for your work all for your writings, everything that you do. Um, I'll make sure that for all the podcast listeners or YouTube viewers that in the description box, I'll post again the links to everybody's socials, who's shared socials, the links to some of their publications, websites, that kind of thing, so that you can follow all of these amazing people and learn more about their work. Um, And whether you're government university, businesses, or in the arts, you have a moral and legal obligation to ask these questions, partner with Indigenous peoples, and not become part of Indigenous identity fraud and appropriation. Because when you have awards or funding or positions that are for Indigenous peoples, you have a legal obligation to make sure that that's the case and you're not doing anything to interfere with our Indigenous rights, our sovereignty, or autonomy. So please share this podcast widely. Show it in your classrooms. Have these discussions and show it to your university officials. Make sure you have these discussions. And again, I'll post all of the links. Thank you, Valden. Thank you, Winona. Thank you, Kim. And I hope to have you all back when we have so much better news to report on this front. But I have a sneaky suspicion this issue is going to be around for a while. We still have a lot more tensions to go before universities really get a grasp on what's happening. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thanks. Nice to see you all.